Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Black Women's Hour. Um, just going to say hello quickly to everyone, my trusty sidekick, Aisha, how's it going? Hi, good, thank you. You should see the time and effort she put into this look, honestly. We've all just been four and a half seconds. Half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and Adam Elliot Cooper, last, I can't remember when I last saw you. I know you interviewed me once, so I've dragged you into this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quick pro pro, or even after this. Yeah, exactly. And Sean Sobers, how are you doing? Dan Thanks for the invite to be here. I was, I was just saying, I don't know what I'm letting myself in for, but I'm looking forward to the, <laughs> to the conversation. To the Nothing. Do you want to say <laughs> about your background? Because you're a lecturer. I've actually used, I've used your picture before. I do diversity training. So I take uh, people's pictures in sometimes and I will go, what do you think this person does? And every time, for Sean, it's DJ... Uh, musician, I think somebody saw a dragon's den, so decided he was a chef. Um, it's like <laughs> I get that a lot. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of stupid. It's like if you bring a black man with dreadlocks to something like that, it's obvious, you know, he's going to be doing something other than you. Exactly. I've got the keyboard and the bass guitar. <laughs> I have played them very well, but they don't need to know that. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, what's your background academically? So, uh, so yeah, I'm an associate professor at the University of the West of England in Bristol, um, and primarily kind of photographer, artist, filmmaker, um, and anthropologist. So I kind of mix all that sort of stuff together. Yeah. And talk about the black experience, you know, history. I'm interested in, I, yeah, I'm interested in narratives of black people, the black experience, and stories that don't really get heard and talked about a lot really so I'm interested yeah. in those those little I don't call them hidden histories or untold stories anymore but I am interested in some of the fascinating aspects of history that we just don't hear about yeah yeah there's yeah we've uh, we had Mark uh why have I forgotten his last name he's my friend Thompson Thompson on he's doing this whole thing um black gay back in the day okay right, right, photography right. oh my god some of the photos are just amazing they're really, really good. And that page is on Insta if you're watching, go check it out. Adam, how about you? Uh, so yeah, um, I work at University of Greenwich um, in the sociology department, and my research mainly looks at policing and anti-racism, uh, both here on the British mainland, but also in Britain's colonies as well. Yeah, and we just were speaking quickly before the show while Aisha was doing her makeup and hair. And that uh, <laughs> you are, uh, Louise Quarteng is your mentor, and we had her on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago. She is, so, she's my rock. Yeah, she's lovely. I want to ask you quickly, and I'm going to start with you. Um, did you watch the Black Power documentary? That I was, did, the one on BBC. Yeah, I yeah, mean... Yeah, I thought it was really great. Yeah, it was really good, but did you feel, like, oh, depressing? Well, you study it, so a lot of people, the reaction to it was, like, nothing's changed. Just nothing has changed whatsoever. Does it, does it feel like... Cause, you know, you look at black communities and policing, are we making any progress? I think that it would have been depressing if we weren't currently in a moment 
of really inspiring black organizing. I think if nothing was taking place, I think if we hadn't saw, seen big mobilizations in the summer of 2020 and saw lots of new, young, energetic, vibrant, radical, hungry um, young people organizing in their communities all over the country, I think for me, it would have felt depressing. It would have, I would have looked back kind of nostalgically on this bygone era of black power. But for me, yeah. it, helped me it helped me to better appreciate that these young people who went, came to the streets in the summer of 2020 and have set up these new black community organizations all over the country are really standing on the shoulders of giants. And it's about us, it's about these kinds of histories being more commonly taught so that we can learn from their mistakes as well as learn from the things that they were, that they achieved um, and to make our movements in this generation stronger than ever. And yeah, I've, for me, I've, I've, it felt difficult to not be inspired. I, yeah, I yeah. loved it. I agree, like learning from Kwesi Johnson made that a comment, like you guys need to watch us and learn from what we did and stuff like that. But I can't, I hate mentioning her, but we have to, we've mentioned her on every single show and I just would like her to behave for one week so we don't have to uh, speak about Priti Patel. But going back through, back through history, has there ever been such a concentrated hate from a home secretary, like when she, I know we've had like the racism in the past, we know because it was like back then it was a more common thing, but she just seems to just want to tear young black people apart. I mean. Yeah. I think I think that like maybe in the eighties and nineties under Thatcher and whatnot, um, I feel like Douglas heard that other like home secretaries were there to kind of almost take the edge off Thatcher a bit. Yeah. Whereas I think it's almost the opposite now, whereas yeah. Boris is kind of a little bit all over the place. And yeah. it's and it's pretty Patel who has to be the kind of the baddie, the bad cop, um, yeah. where, whereas Boris can kind of fumble on and pretend he does. You know, he's not really involved in all of the proto fascism that his government's doing. Yeah, I'm wondering if they're going to set her up, you know, because she's still an Asian woman as much. She doesn't like to remember that. I'm just because she goes so far. I'm just wondering if they're going to let her do something, turn around and go, oh, my goodness. What's she doing? Like they didn't know about it the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, anyway. there's um, no loyalty in that party. There's no loyalty. None at all. None at all. Sean, you're from Bristol and we saw uh, people in Bristol. Were you, apart from, were you the first city to come out um, against the police bill? Like in those numbers? In those numbers, I don't think we were the first to protest, but absolutely we are the most consistent city to protest yeah. like every night. There's been protests going on. And yeah, as you saw that, that, that you know, it's it's turned into a kind of violent disorder and riots outside Bridewell Police Station. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, you know, you it only hits the news when it's violent. There's been plenty of protests the day before that and the day after, days after that, that were completely peaceful. Um, but, you know, the police in Bristol saw, you know, a kind of a change in strategy, if you like, you know, with 7th of June last year when the Colston statue was toppled. The, the police were heavily criticised because they actually just stood back and they didn't intervene because they said that if they intervened, it would have made matters worse and it could have turned into a riot. So that the police strategy at that point was to stand back. And Priti Patel herself criticised that, that, that strategy. So with the protests that happened more recently, they took the opposite approach and actually antagonized the people and it turned into the riot, do you know what I mean? So the day after that, they reverted back to their previous strategy of standing back and it's peaceful. And actually I think oh, that's okay. a lot, yeah. 
Yeah, because we didn't hear. I did see the interviews when the Colston statue went down um, and they were saying, look, there's a lot of strength of feeling about that statue in this area. And, you know, people were upset about it. I do like the way like black people got blamed, obviously. Mm. I saw them pushing that statue into the river and unless they were wearing Michael Jackson gloves, those were white hands I saw doing. Yeah, yeah. I There's don't know a... what we've got to do with any of that. <laughs> Leave us alone. Definitely. Oh, There's um... a fantastic photograph by a photographer called Kia Gravel, and it shows a whole kind of panoramic when it's just hitting the water. And, you know, there's all kinds of ethnicities in there, but predominantly white. Yeah. But as you say, on the day, it's definitely pictured as this is black people doing this. But it showed the strength of feeling. This is a Bristol thing and a yeah. Bristol-wide thing that went beyond ethnicity, which I, which for me was a positive thing. Yeah, because I, um, I didn't really know about the history of protesting in Bristol. I texted my friend who lives down there. I was like, oh, are you got, I said, are you and your son okay? He's like, I'm fine. It's always kicking off down here because we're processing. Helicopters going over my house. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he goes, oh yeah, it's always like that. It's so why that. is it like that in Bristol? Is it because of the because it had a port and the slave history? What is it about Bristol that makes? Yeah, it? it's it's an interesting one. I mean, I don't think anyone can particularly put their finger on it, um, but it's always had a very radical kind of past, a very independent spirit. A lot of the, you know, like, if you think about a lot of the festivals that happen all over the country, a lot of the kind of organisers and people that work on festivals live in Bristol. There's a big van-dwelling community that live here because they work on festivals and things like that. Um, you know, Tony Benn was our MP for a good while. And, you know, we're, we're, our, 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 the, the, the riots here and the uprisings here actually have a root in slavery as well. Do you know what I mean? In terms of the history and the resistance to slavery. Um, you know, 1090, there were slave riots in Bristol, which predated transatlantic slave trade, but it was about how um, the, the resistance to slavery at the time, a, a gentleman by the name of Wolfston, uh, and apparently he kind of juck out the eye of one of the, the slave masters at that point. And it goes all the way through. Uh, so like, you know, 1831, we had the Queen Square riots where they did an uprising against the, the, uh, the corruption in the local kind of government and the corruption of the wealthy. And they tried to burn down Queen Square where a lot of them lived, you know. Yeah. So we, we've had riots about the opening of a Tesco in yeah, Stoke Rock. <laughs> 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 oh my goodness. So this real recent one, I wasn't that surprised by it. I was like, okay, yeah, Bristol's doing it again. Do you know I mean? Yeah, that's literally my friends actually. <laughs> And, and, and Bristol kicked stuff off in the 1980s as well, right? It was exactly. people talk about 1981, but it was 1980 that saw the first rebellions of that uh, decade. And it was St Paul's in Bristol, right? The police raided the black and white cafe, this Caribbean run cafe. Pe people in the black community come out to defend it, and this is where the rebellions begin, right? And then it's and then it kicks off again in 81. Exactly. So, um, it's really yeah. crucial. Yeah, definitely. I think you know Bristol's what is it, Britain's fifth largest city kind of thing. But a lot of things kind of happen in this part of the world. But actually, you know, we had the bus boycott in 1963 that was one of yeah, the instigators yeah. of the, the, yeah, the, the Race Relations Act. You know what I mean? So there's a whole heap of stories to tell down here when it comes to rebellion and resistance, particularly from the black community, as Adam said. Yeah, I was going to mention the Bristol um, bus boycott. You have a black mayor now as well, don't you, Marvin Rees? Yeah, Marvin Reese. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's a good guy. I mean, I've known him for a long I made a film with him in 2007. Very strong 
do you know what I mean? Intellectual, um, nuanced thinker. Um, and the deputy mayor is Asha Craig, Rastafari woman as well, you know. And, oh, so, know and at the same time, the ceremonial mayor was Kilio Lake, another black woman, you know, okay. that was only for a year. So she's no longer the ceremonial mayor. But we had the elected mayor, the ceremonial mayor, and the deputy mayor, all, all black people. <laughs> it's like, yeah. we need to be shaking away. <laughs> Aisha, oh, I thought you were putting your hand up to say something. No, but I was going to give a little translation about joking um, and generally what it means for our white <laughs> audience. Um, you know, it's I jerk, he jerks, it's she jerks, they jerk, we jerk, you know, but it's basically just stabbing or spearing or knifing yeah. or, yeah, just anything. Took a dot. Um, but yes, it's useful. Just in case you never know, they might not know. Thank you, Aisha. This is Aisha's audition for Dictionary Corner <laughs> on Countdown. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's also a dance move so if any of our audience find themselves in a dance are you going to give us a demonstration a woman, and, and a woman is going to say they're going to joke like don't feel like she's about to attack you don't worry that's it's true. okay it's true. that is true that is true um so adam you've got your book out at the moment i mean how many that's years correct. of research did you do into that because you've been around yeah. the subject for a long time do you know what yeah so the book is called black resistance the british policing and it kind of begins, um, it kind of began as a series of blog articles that I wrote in 2011. Um, of course, in 2011, you've got three really high profile police killings of black people. You've got the reggae artist Smiley Culture in February of 2011. You've got um, a young black man uh, called Kingsley Burrell in Birmingham a couple months later. And then of course, you've got Mark Duggan in August of 2011. And there were significant black mobilizations following each of these uh, police killings. And so I was writing blogs about all of these mobilizations um, and thinking about how, why it is and um, there's this escalation in racist police violence in this particular moment. And the other thing that was happening that was really important was after the civil unrest of 2011, where the police were like raiding people's homes, um, massive loads of arrests. Um, I was volunteering at a group called the New Monitoring Project, which was helping to provide advocacy for young black people who are getting beaten up by the police, which is happening a lot um, in that summer as well. And so I started to write about these community defense campaigns as well. Um, and then I realized there was so much stuff happening that it required more than just a series of blog pieces. And I was really quite frustrated about the fact that I wanted to learn about the history of black struggle in this country. And there are very few books written about it. Um, and a lot of the books I could find were about histories in the United States. And so I was like, right, I'm going to write about this and I'm going to write about it properly. And that's why I decided to turn it into a PhD and, um, and then eventually turn that PhD into a book. So it's coming on, it's about 10 years of work. Yeah, yeah. Which is crazy. I remember thing. that year, actually, because that's when I started to get involved as well, because it's just terrifying. And I remember yeah. we did, we started the Stop and Search Legal Project, which I was a patron of, and we crossed paths with the new monitoring project and stuff. Yeah. we go into estates and teach rights and stuff like that yeah. you've had quite a really accessible little you know thing that we would use to teach them what they should say what they shouldn't say and how they should feel but it was a really frightening time to be a black parent and you know my son was just he just turned from cute little nerd to oh my god he says Kimmy like you know what I mean he just like shot up because he looked like Urkel when he was like the smaller mm -hmm. 
and he had these little thick Coca-Cola bottle glasses and stuff. And then all of a sudden he just, you know, and then he started playing his rugby and he's just huge now. So it's always um, just something that's absolutely terrifying to me. And I kind of um, had went on quite a few of those demonstrations, actually put one on with Merlin Emmanuel, who's Smiley Culture's nephew. Um, but we were trying to draw the parallels. It was after Trayvon Martin, we were trying to draw the parallels with what happens over there in the US to over here. Um, what would you say, because every single time it's so annoying that we try to speak about police violence against us here. I'm sure Small Axe helped, you know, showing the Mangrove Nine story and stuff. And I'm hoping enough people like sort of picked up on that. But you always hear, well, where's it happening here? This isn't America, you know, like how many yeah. bodies have to turn up? Do you know what I mean? So what do you say when people say that? What would you want them to know if they know nothing on the subject? I guess there's two things. There's one that's like the fact that Britain loves to do this kind of diversion tactic, right? To say that, you know, racism doesn't really happen here. It's this thing that happens in America. It's this thing that kind of used to happen in you know, South Africa, but I think everything's probably fine now. Um, and I think what this partly does is obscure Britain's kind of colonial history, right? Um, and the fact that it's been doing racism for a very long time and that it's wholly responsible for the uh, racial hierarchies that exist in the Caribbean and across Africa and what have you across the period of colonialism. But even in today, 21st century Britain, um, on average, about one person a week dies at the hands of police, prisons or borders um, in this country which is quite significant, but also um, that's like the extreme end, right? And the most, the, the, the most kind of consistent um, violence that we see is incarceration and brutality. And we know that black people are more likely to be uh, subjected to excessive use of force and be tased and that kind of stuff. But we also know that in this country, Britain incarcerates black people at the same rate as the United States incarcerates African-Americans. Right. So this idea of mass incarceration of black people is not an exclusively American phenomenon. Britain is doing it at the very same rate, if not worse, um, in this um, in this country. And that's really crucial as well. And, and part of the reason for that is because Britain's prison population has almost doubled since the early 1990s. And one of the re one of the ways in which that massive expansion of the prison population um, has been justified or rationalized by this government is because of their racist justifications, right? The same, telling everyone that they're under under threat from uh, gangsters and terrorists and immigrants and all of these different um, uh, kind of criminal folk devils, which uh, clearly use racism in order to justify this massive expansion um, of the prison system to the point where now, not only do we have about a quarter of our prison system are black Asian or other racialized minorities in this country, like massively overrepresented, right? Um, we've also kind of set up prisons which are basically racially segregated, right? We have prisons in this country which are specifically for so-called foreign nationals. What does that mean, right? It means that we're basically segregating our prisons under uh, through the lines of like ethnicity and nationalism. Um, and we also, of course, have immigration detention centers, which are basically prisons for like black and brown people and sometimes Eastern European people, right? And so again, we see the ways in which race plays a really fundamental role in, in expanding and justifying Britain's um, prison and policing systems in ways that are, are really, really scary. But also, I think, and it's really crucial to say, also subjected to massive popular resistance um, from, from black and other oppressed communities as well, which I think is really crucial to remember.
I mean, I haven't been in the prison service for a long time, but I do remember when I went into Pentonville, where I was working, and I remember like they would take us around and say, this is the, you know, conviction wing, this is the remand wing. I was looking around the remand wing going, hey, hang on a second. Like it was something like 94% black. I was like, are you kidding me? Like these are the people who are not convicted. So it just showed me in that instant that black people weren't getting bailed. You know what I mean? They would lock them up as much as they could. And the other thing I noticed during my time there, um, when I bothered to show up for work because I reported sick a lot, but like, um, was how the racial makeup had started to change in the, in the, the five year period that I was in that job. And I noticed, um, so when we first went, it was pretty much black and white and then a few Asians, but it's as they started recruiting people from different communities. Then I remember there was a huge influx of uh, Turkish people once they started getting Turkish police because you just walk down green lanes and they would just have it in the window, but it was written in Turkish passports for sale or something, you know, and no one knew what it meant. So it was just like, everyone was just walking past it and not knowing. And then as soon as they got Turkish police as little informers, they started bringing in people from their own communities. So yeah, Aisha, you were gonna say? Um, I was gonna ask Adam a question about um, segregation in prisons. Um, what does the sort of Windrush um, scandal disgrace, how does that work in terms of segregation in prisons? Are those people sent to detention centres? Are they imprisoned in black prisons or what, you know? Well, so it's, yes, uh, I guess it's, I should really, really clear and say in that there's obviously no black prisons, right? But we do have prisons for foreign nationals. So you have people who were born in Jamaica, Antigua, St. Lucia, St. Vincent, Barbados, um, and they get arrested. Chances are they'll be put to a prison for so-called foreign nationals rather than a, a mainstream prison, right? Um, or they might be put into immigration detention centre rather than a mainstream prison. And so you can see the ways in which um, the state is kind of sifting through people and putting people who are not considered to be British, you know, that race plays a really important role in that, right? Um, into these separate kinds of prisons. And so we're seeing lots of young people. So for instance, we're seeing lots of our young people who might be picked up on drugs charges or whatever, um, or some other kind of charge. And if they weren't born in this country, then at the end of their prison sentence, they can be deported. Um, even if they've lived here for most, almost all of their lives or most of their adult lives or what have you. Um, and what we're also seeing is the police are saying, oh, these young people, they're part of a gang our intelligence says they're a gang and so which is kind of meaningless right and they might show some youtube videos of them being in the background of like a rap song or something do you know what i mean when something's being filmed on their estate so this is used as evidence to say oh they're in a gang and then that is used to say right that's why we need to deport this person or that's why we need to extend their prison sentence so you see the ways in which um kind of black culture and what have you is being used to further criminalize um, a lot of our young people as well and i mean in one really horrifying case a judge said to this young person, right, um, um, are you in a gang? Are you in a gang? And the young person kept being like, no, I'm not in a gang. I'm not in a gang. And in the end, that young person was deported because the judge was like, this young person's got no remorse, clearly, because he won't admit that he's in a gang. Wow. And so, he's, yeah, it's, it's actually really twisted. Um, and so, yeah, we see the ways in which this kind of obsession with this idea that all black boys must be part of a gang um, really really playing into the, this uh, expansion of police power both through like prisons and deportations. Mm -hmm. But also the way that 
there's never we're never given the benefit of the doubt there's never any sympathy we're talking about a boy here if that was some floppy haired Tarquin you know it would be everyone would be sat there full of sympathy crying for him but our children their adults at eight or whatever it is that they start I mean you were talking about the, um, your son Abba you know and how at 10 it went from him being cute my son is nearly nine and he's so cute and he's got curly hair and oh look at his hair and he's got curly hair and you know it's very quick before they're you know, not believed, um, criminalized adults before their time. You know, that really speaks to that. Imagine all that time saying no, 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 to just be told that was further proof of lack of remorse. Exactly. Where do you go with that? Yeah. It's ridiculous. Sean, did you have anything to add there? Yeah, no, I mean, just co-sign all of that. And I recognize all of that. Do you know what I mean? And give thanks to Adam for his research in terms of getting that story out there. But, you know, I do a lot of work in education and, you know, I, I give it inset days, you know, teaching to teachers on their teacher training. And one of the things I talk about is to, you know, don't treat black children to be older than they are, to remember they're still children. Do you know what I mean? And there's this perception of, you know, black children and black boys being intimidating and loud and aggressive. You know what I mean? And they're treating them like adults when they, they're, they're children. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. they just allow them. And like that, and that from then just carries on. So when you see black boys hanging out as you do as kids, and then that being labelled as a gang, just because they're your friends, and you know, and then it, as Adam's talking about, that then gets criminalised, and you get locked into that system. You know, joint enterprise as well. You know mm -hmm. how that that idea that if there's something happening over there, you're going to get implicated into it just from being there but from yeah. being a black body in that space you become connected if you're a white person in that space as I just said you don't get benefit of the day do you know what I mean so you kind of I mean, in one of the most cruel horrible cases that I've seen that sort of combines everything that we're saying is Osnin Brown at the moment who was around uh, some people who stole the phone they've said he didn't steal the phone he's he's autistic he tried to tell on the people that's on the phone. They said that he tried to grasp them up. That you know, they're clearly, and then they're saying to this boy, you're gonna go back to Jamaica. And he doesn't understand. And he's, you know, he might be 20 years old, but he's not even given, you know, the presumption of innocence or taking into account the fact that he's autistic and saying to his mum, okay, if I go there, what bus can I get back? It's, you know, to go and see you, it's heartbreaking. And then another example of that was with a Muslim guy, and I'm sorry, I did a lot around his case and I've forgotten his name, but a few years ago, there was a white autistic guy who'd hacked the American computer system. And then there was a, a Muslim guy who'd done something similar. Um, and the Muslim guy was taken over to America, you know? And it was just heartbreaking and seeing his mum and she was like, I'm going on a hunger strike until they do something and care about my son. It's like, please eat because that's a big mistake because they do not show us any kind of mercy whatsoever. And I do, yeah, I mean, I had that with my son. I remember once going to the school and they were like, um, remember like in this last couple of years of secondary school, I was there all the time, right? And I remember going up once and they were going, they went, what's wrong with him? You know, he just seems, he seems so like aggressive and stuff. I went, he's spoilt. And they were like, oh yeah. Went, I'm sorry, it's just a spoiled rat, that's all. Do you know what I mean? You're acting like this boy is from some street gang and he's, you know, he, he's just not. He's just, you know, 
obstinate and stuff like that. And it's a constant explaining. And then having like my daughter, the youngest one now, who's three, being told that uh, staff were scared of her. Oh, she's terrified of her. How can you be terrified of a three-year-old? What is she going to do? Do you know what I mean? Why? Like, You're in the wrong job. Right. I went, how is she terrified of her? You know, and it was just like constantly having to be there and explaining this is a three-year-old or this is just a 12-year-old boy or it's just absolutely exhausting. And Aisha, I know you're really, really worried and you get really annoyed because your son's called Cool. My God. So my son is mixed race he's, and I've done well because he's only a little bit lighter than me. But, um, <laughs> but and his dad's white. I know. <laughs> But, um, but he's got the most amazing hair and he's very, he is cool, but I'm allowed to say that I'm his mum, but all the time white people keep telling me and him how cool he is. He's so cool. He's so cool. I'm like, he's not cool. He's six or he was six at the time or he likes wordplay. He's a little like geek for cars. He's not cool. You know, he sings long and he does this when he sings. He ain't cool. Trust me. That's what happens when you raise your kids in Brighton. This, But like, you know, he's just not cool. He's just a sweet, soft, gorgeous little boy. And cool, it makes it so two dimensional. And it's kind of so othering that like you're black, so you're cool. He's never given any of the sort of multifaceted nature that white children are given, you know, and I, and I really resent that because I think cool is a polite way of saying urban is a polite way of saying you know and it's just it's like a it's like a what's the word like a uh an initiation into soon you're going to be a scary black guy you know yeah. it starts yeah. off as cool and i mean ava you've met him it's touching going up you know and i'm his mama i'm supposed to say that but it is frustrating and it's not fair just to actually i just remember him dressing up with my daughter and running in on halloween yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> and just being like, I can't fight Mimi, she's little girl. And I was just like, that's how cool he is. Yeah, really. <laughs> you know, he's just while Mimi's on his back punching him. <laughs> <laughs> but he loved her, and they're just they're really cute. And I just think that yeah. all of that stuff would be completely in the hands of or eyes of un, or under the gaze of white people would just yeah. be like, <gasps> you know, no, when really they're just being kids. Yeah, the, the Bell Hooks has written about that. There's a good video, I think it's oh. on YouTube, um, about cool. It, it's, it's called Black Men Cool We Cool, something like that. Um, I have to look it up. About how it's it's a trap, as you say, like the white gaze, um, you know, looking on us, yeah, you're cool. And then we start to play to that stereotype. We start to become that. Um, and we become trapped into that representation. We just become a walking stereotype of ourselves, which is damaging to us, not damaging to the white gaze, you know. It's, uh... it's, it's kind of an extension of, you know, I mean, my, my brother's an accountant and he probably won't mind me saying, he got three A's at A-level. He's a really, really smart person. I love him dearly. But, you know, people come up to him like, you're all right, bro, right white people. I mean, I, or when people come up to me and they're like, hey girl, I'm like, okay, wrong freaking country for a yeah, start. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, come on, it's just not me. And your expectation of that or for that to be me or him is insulting and shows how narrow-minded your view. I mean, it's just boring. And it's like, we're still here and this is still happening. I don't know. I like you can be that if you want to be. Do you know what no, I mean? Me neither, but it's the expectation that it is us. Yeah, it's ridiculous. not seen as a range of people. Like yeah. all four of yeah, us exactly. have got very different backgrounds. We're just not going to be seen as the entire range. But I was going to ask something as well about academia. Um, so, like, do you have a lot of black students, Sean? So what do you say you're doing? Do you lecture other lecturers on, you know what I mean, unconscious bias or something or...? 
I don't. Um, I don't have a lot of black students from not, and that's not from want of trying. Do you know what I mean? I've been teaching now for 20, 19 years, been teaching at university. Um, I, you know, my, my main area that I teach is photography, also filmmaking and PhDs, MAs. And yeah, there's still a real lack of black students in those areas. Do you know what I mean? I've done, yeah, it's, it's a really hard nut to crack, to be honest. I mean, I've done a lot of kind of like, you know, widened participation work, going to schools, doing projects, gifted and talented, you know, all these different kind, you know, and community projects. My, my you know, big part of my career still is doing a lot of community media and working with young people in the in the local community you know outside of this 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 thing and I think there's this perception with the university that is this you know this is not for us this isn't a world we want to get into and I think very much also it's just seen as one option amongst many other options do you know what I mean so it's an you know it's an option that take it or leave it but you know what's this going to do for us and there's this you know seeing these kind of institutions which are kind of very faceless it that you know just can come across as very inaccessible um when we do when I do have black students and you know I've got some very good black students at the moment on the photography course and do you know what I mean I kind of you know they're on my radar <laughs> do you know what I mean and I kind of try and do everything I can to kind of try to support them and you know and I'm the only black member of staff, definitely on the course. There's, there's, there's a few more in the department. And it shouldn't have to be that way. Do you know what I mean? You know, to take that kind of parental, I guess, role on. But I'm extremely conscious that when I've got black, black students, I just really want to protect them and see them through and speak up for them. And do you know what I mean? Yeah. Be in the corner. Um, but I, yeah, I, don't, I definitely don't have all the answers about how to turn those things around do you know what I mean because I, yeah I, I was I was yeah. just interested in um obviously you know if you're going to go through the English education system here as well um you're not going to want to stay in an education system where you've been beaten mm. down all your life but I was just wondering like um I don't know about you and how many black students and stuff you see coming through your course Adam but I was wondering because it was just again in the news it's been in the news you know over the years again the other day they were mentioning black graduates can't even come out and get good jobs you know and it was just so I was just wondering if that had any effect on the students that you have do they feel like what's the point do you know what I mean it's just I mean, I, like, so at Greenwich University, I probably have more black students. In fact, I definitely have more black students than I've ever had before. Um, all the other universities I've worked at, King's, King's College London, Warwick, Oxford, UCL, very few, if any, black students. In fact, I never had a black student when I was teaching at Oxford um, and maybe a sprinkling at King's. Um, and so, whereas Greenwich University, a lot of students are local. So they're from Lewisham, they're from like, Southeast London. Um, a lot of them obviously from lower income backgrounds. And uh, I quite, I really enjoy teaching them and uh, they're really interested and they're engaged and um, their, their approach to sociology isn't this kind of like, well, you know, it's expected of me to go to university. So it's just something I'm doing to like, you know, go through the motions. They're actually, they're there because they really want to be there. And actually it wasn't the norm in their family or in their school or in their community necessarily to go into higher education. And so I think there's a different level of engagement, which um, I really appreciate and I really love. And, I remember being at King's and um, uh, which was my previous job 
And black students would often just turn up at my office and be like, can you help me with my dissertation? I know that you write about this, but actually I'm writing about something completely different, but can you just help anyway? Um, and it was that kind of, and of course I always did. And it's that kind of thing that um, I think is really important for supporting young black students who want to do, particularly those who want to do critical work around race or empire or anything like that, to, to, to lend that support and show that you're there to, to, to aid, um, aid them in doing what, doing what it is they need to do to, to achieve. Yeah, I mean, there's like academia's been, you know, something on another thing on the radar, Pretty Patel, who, as we just, oh, I, oh, doesn't matter. Um, but there, there's the whole decolonizing. Uh, Louise had a better expression for it than decolonizing the curriculum. Oh gosh, what was it? It was, it was just more different, sort of extending the curriculum or something like that. I mean, is either of the courses that you guys teach yeah. under any pressure in that kind of way? Because yeah. it's, they just want us just to not learn stuff now. That's just their latest tactic, right? Take that off the curriculum. You're not allowed to do, do that. You know, I think Michael Gove started it when he was Secretary for Education. I think it's just being continued. And it's just being, you know, making out that, that students saying, well, actually, if we could learn from this African philosopher and stuff like that, they're acting like it's, they tried to, do you know what I mean? Go up behind the queen and just tip her off the throne. It's ridiculous. Is that affecting any of either of your courses? Yeah, I mean, I'm involved in the decolonizing the curriculum initiative that goes across the whole university. It's not just the course. And that, you know, that, and, you know, to be fair to the university, this was in place before the Black Lives Matter summer last year, you know, that that was that was that was work that started maybe at the beginning of 2019 kind of thing. Um, so it, it's, it's difficult because such a big university, there has definitely been an effort in all the faculties across health and sciences, the arts, architecture, law and business. Um, I guess my critique of the word decolonizing that is not really decolonized. I'm quite protective of that word. Do you know what I mean? And I think, you know, diversifying the curriculum needs to be that done. That was it. Yeah, you know that I mean? was it. And I think <laughs> it's fine if it's if it's diversifying the curriculum. Yeah, that work needs to be done. But if we're talking about yeah. decolonizing, that's a very different thing. And I do give a, I do. It's not training, but I do give a, a lecture to my bosses at the university about what this means. And it's not just in the classroom. It's also about, you know, because in the classroom, that's the responsibility of the lecturers and what the lecturers can do. But actually, if we're going to be decolonizing a university, you also have to look at senior management and the pro vice chancellor. It comes back into recruitment of staff. It goes to how you're treating your, you know, the, the, the cleaners. Are the cleaners the predominantly black uh, core staff in the university rather than the academics? You know, it, it goes across the whole structure of the institution and not just what's in the reading list of a particular course. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. you know, I do, I do. So, I, you know, I don't, like you say, I don't run un, unconscious bias workshops, but I do have those conversations and try to use the platform to, you know, to, to, to get yeah. those things across. But I, yeah, but with all these things, you can't do them alone or in isolation. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it can't be yeah. left only the black staff to do it either because, there's not that many of us and we'll be running to the ground. Yes. We'll still be expected to do our day jobs as we are. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And there's I, a problem there as well, you know. I always, I say when I'm doing any kind of diversity training at any of these companies, just you do something. 
we're mm. tired, do you know what I mean? Just well, take I'm... the heat off, just like uh, doing something for TFL about being an ally. It was just take the heat off the black, mm. and brown people, say yeah. something, do something. We don't always have the energy. Yeah. But um, yeah, diversify the curriculum was what Louise said. That's what I was yeah. trying to think, because I was thinking I need to use that going forward. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned Oxford. I mean, um, Oxford and Cambridge, and I think it's just simply because those institutions are just seen as the elite and they're so protective over them. I mean, the Daily Mail spend most of their time harassing um, Dr. Gopal from uh, Cambridge. It's like, leave the woman alone. Do you know what I mean? And I think it is that hate that they have. Like they hate poor black people, don't get me wrong, but poor black people are in their place. There is nothing worse, do you know what I mean? Like then a black or brown person who's somewhere where half of them couldn't get to if, if they wanted to. And that, you know, I mean, geez, look at Meghan Markle, for goodness sake. That is just the biggest, like, almost like a know your place kind of racism, that how dare you be so uppity. But one of the things, like I got involved in a couple of things at Oxford and I've debated there a couple of times and stuff. And, um, one thing that really struck me in Oxford, because do you remember the We Too Are Oxford um, with Femi Nylander and uh, that whole campaign and getting the, the roads must fall, right, and getting that statue taken down and just, oh, they were so angry with that South African guy who was on the Rhodes Scholarship. And like, oh, and he was like, good, I'm taking the money, now take the statue down. Like, they were so resentful of that, that particular group of people. But one thing that, I, that I, struck me, and it's really depressing, because when they were trying to take the statue down the first time, it's gone now, right, or going? Do you, Apparently anyway? it's going. They've said well, yeah, it's going, after, but yeah, don't hold your breath. Yeah, after last summer, but one of the things that I saw that I found really disturbing was the fact that people who were donating money to Oxford University were like, if you take this statue down and they were threatening to take away a hundred million pounds worth of funding a year if they dared to take the statue down. And I just thought, my God, it's just like, it's not just what you can see, the policing, the schools, the this, the that. It's these hidden people behind the scenes who are investing in rape, what has it got to do with you? You are not there, maybe you attended a few years ago and you're that upset that you will withdraw your money. It's it's psychopathic, it's scary. Yeah, no, um, I mean, shock horror, the ruling class have terrible reactionary <laughs> politics and are very nostalgic about the good old days of empire, right? And I think that the kind of people who seek to um, invest in, colleges at Oxford University and things like that are really invested in those systems of power, really invested in them. They, they see them as places that made them as and made their success and made their wealth. And they want to reproduce that kind of power. And they want to make sure it stays with only, only a very relatively small um, elite group of people. And but the and but the university staff are also, I mean the university um, management were very supportive of it as well. I remember the um, I think it was the Chancellor of Oxford University went on to Radio 4 and said, look, if these students don't like the statue of Cecil Rhodes, they can go somewhere else. They can go and study somewhere else. Um, and it's like, well, what kind of diversity of thought is that, that you're not allowed to be critical of a statue of a white supremacist? And if you are critical of it, you should just go and learn somewhere else because we only have this, this singular kind of political 
um, interpretation of history at this particular institution. And so the kind of arrogance that comes with um, supporting people like Cecil Rhodes, it, it was kind of astonishing. Um, and um, I think, yeah, I think we, I think I was re I was quite proud of the work that we did um, in exposing the university and and I think what's really crucial as well was making it not simply about this statue and being like Oxford University is actually implicated in lots of modern forms of imperialism. I mean, the where I did my PhD in the geography department, it has a geosciences centre which is funded by Shell Oil, which are doing lots of modern imperialism across the Niger Delta, across all, all over the world, right? There is a centre in the econ economics department, there is a centre for the study of resource rich economies funded by BP Oil. What is that if not just like modern imperialism? I mean, oh, I wonder what research rich economies we're going to be researching now to, to get our dirty fingers on. Um, yeah. We've got like all of these weapons companies, right? These arms manufacturers selling weapons to Israel, Saudi Arabia, etc., all over the world, right? Oxford is deeply invested in modern forms of imperialism. And I think that using the statue as a way of showing that imperialism, unfortunately, hasn't gone away. Um, in the way that a lot of people think it has, I think was also a really crucial part of the work that these campaigns were doing. Yeah, I remember writing a bit around it and Toby Young was like, oh, if you keep going on about the racism at Oxford, then it'll be your fault when more people don't go there. I went, yeah, mate, it's my fault. I'm in the admission, sitting there going, you're not coming in. I'm the one going around terrorizing black students. It's all my fault. Don't mention that racism and it won't, you know what I mean? It will just go away. Like, come on, I said, it's the racism that's putting them off, not me. It's none of my business. I'm at, exactly. home, I'm at home watching Real Housewives. Leave me out of it. Yeah, um, did, so did, the Black Power, sorry, did the Black Power movement in Britain stop people from migrating to Britain from the Caribbean? Did people say, oh my God, there's a Black Power movement. Better not go to Britain. No, they were like, yeah, we're coming and we're joining your team. Exactly. <laughs> Aisha, you're going to say something. Yeah. I was just going to ask, actually, both of you alluded to it. What you think, because I know when I was at university, I found it difficult when we studied... Um, things about race because it was so white and it was so un not understanding despite the fact they were doing these modules and I just wondered when Sean mentioned the cleaners and then you mentioned the fact that the universities are heavily invested in what kind of and then the fact that black students would just come to you because they knew they could trust you really essentially to not have all the preconceptions that white people have about us and I just wondered what you feel like the atmosphere is like for black students or um, any minority but particularly black students because we know we suffer different um, stereotypes than model minorities yeah I wondered what you guys think the atmosphere is like with all of that around whether they notice it, whether they're involved, you know. Um, yeah, it's a good question. And up to, I think it was like 2018, 2019, I saw a really, uh, a, a real politicized kind of black students in my department, which was great to see. Like I said, I've been there since 2002. And this was the most time that I've seen a real movement. And I think one of the, there was, there's a couple of things that I think kind of supported that. One was the student union had a had a lead at that time who was very invested in that world and very overtly supportive of that. We also had a black president of the student union. Also, um, one of my colleagues who's now at London Metropolitan, Zena Khan, um, she ran a initiative called um, Equity, which was directly supportive of black students. And I think these things happening at the same time then I suddenly saw my students in photography, students in filmmaking, students in fine art, graphic design, fashion, all coming together. They're running workshops. They were giving talks. 
you know, and, and also there's another organization called Rising Art. So I think there was a kind of a stars aligned at that time. And that legacy has continued, do you know what I mean? So there's definitely still within Bristol, within the arts community, this kind of generation of students that came out from those years that are still doing really active stuff. Um, but predating that, one of that same course students I got to know because when I walked into my the floor where my office is, and we've got photography studios there, and I saw these posters up that it said, I am melanin. And I was like, oh, who's doing this? There's a photo shoot around melanin. I, you know, I need to know who's doing this. So I, kind of, I saw these models buzzing around and I said, oh, who's in charge of this? So I found the student. I was like, oh, you know, I teach photography. She taught graphic design. Uh, she, she was a student in graphic design. So we just had a chat about her project. And, you know, she just wanted some advice as well because she wasn't a photographer. And she said, um, what it broke my heart because I said to her, oh, have you done, she was in the third year and I said, oh, have you done projects like this throughout your degree? Um, and she said, no, this is the first time she's ever done a project that was around black identity or black issue because she felt before that as the only black student in her tutor group that, you know, people would have rolled their eyes or just not understood or, do you know what I mean? She just felt too self-conscious. Whereas now she thought I'm in the third year sod it, I'm just going to do it. Do you know what I mean? And I just thought, you know what? Do you know what I mean? Like, you're paying these fees and it's really sad to hear that students don't feel they're able to just express themselves in a creative degree, which should be about self-expression. Do you know what I mean? So, in, you know, it's, it's really difficult. So, but at the same time, I'm conscious of my Black students not to have the expectation that they should have to do a project around black identity, but to let them know that if they wanted to, they should, they're safe to do that as well. Same with my female students, that if they want to do projects around female identity, do you know what I mean? And it, it cuts across the board on an intersectional level, really. Mm -hmm. So it's just about being transparent. You know, when I'm giving lectures, I often show my own projects. I show my own work. I talk about my own vulnerability. I talk about my own identity. So students know that that's fair game to talk about if they if that's where they wanted to go. And, yeah, it does I mean, make you vulnerable, doesn't it? Especially in a white environment, talking about expressing your feelings on your blackness. Absolutely, absolutely. Adam, did you have a, a similar? Yeah, I mean, I didn't I didn't write anything about race at all really until I started my PhD. I mean, I did my, I did an undergrad in politics. Race was never mentioned. I did a master's in global politics. Again, race is never mentioned. And I was also really careful to, I was writing about race a lot in my kind of spare time and um, doing lots of anti-racist activism. So I thought, right, for my academics, I'm not going to write about race. I'm going to look, I'm going to look at things like class and gender and global politics, blah, blah, blah. And so I only really started to look at it in my PhD, which was also the first time I ever had a, a black um, academic, worked with a black academic in my whole life, black lecturer. Wow. Um, and I had to like, base in, like specifically seek her out um, in order to um, in order to have her uh, supervise me. And before that, yeah, I'd never had a black lecturer, and, and therefore I guess never really, um, uh, yeah, felt fully comfortable to be like, right, this is what I want to do with my work. This is why this is what I'm interested in. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's really important that we have those kinds of networks and those that kind of support for people to be able to. Yeah, feel like they can make those kinds of political and social um, arguments and that, do that kind of research um, because yeah, too often you feel like yeah, it's it's not considered it's considered to be something that's just niche or um, or or not really relevant 
um, or not really central. Like it's like a it's a little footnote to history rather than something which is, which shapes people's lives and entire populations and in fact the entire world the last four or five yeah. centuries. I think yeah, I can kind of recognise a lot of what you both said. I mean, that's how it is in life. You know, if you're in these areas, you kind of feel. I remember the first time I stayed at Aisha's and we were just playing ragga music, and she was like, "If it was a white friend here, I'd feel compelled to turn it off now and put something else on." But it's like so relaxing, isn't it? It's just like we could just play whatever we want, and we were like, "Oh, do you remember that one?" And I feel the same in comedy. You know, when I was doing comedy a lot, it's like, "Oh, how much black stuff shall I do? What should I do?" And when I just thought, you know what, I don't care. You can say whatever you like. I'm just going to talk about what I want to talk about. And if I don't want to talk about it, I won't talk about it. Like, you know, I remember doing Celebrity Mastermind and they were like, are you going to do Black History? Are you going to do this? Are you going to do like something like Martin Luther King? I was like, if you think I'm going on TV embarrassing Black people when I can't answer a single question. So I just did Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I knew a bit more about that. But no, I think... Um, having those spaces to organize like I spoke a couple times at black student conference and friend of mine Dennis Fernando was the first ever black student officer I don't know how I think it's kind of broken up a little bit in the last couple of years I think last Aaron Keeley was the last one that I knew uh, oh no Shakira Martin was after that but Aaron Keeley was really really good and really organized and very very so does that black student space still exist they had some great Akala. My, I took my son down there one day because he's being a nuisance, and Akala was there, and he was just like, Whoa! and he was just like, completely after that, was just changed. And that, and then the hundred black men of London as well. Like, I got him involved in that, so those guys were really good at sort of you know steering him. Is the black students? Um, um, still there. I, I know that I know. So the Black Students Conf um, campaign was, re I think, a really important um, political campaign for the NUS, which had re had a history of having really kind of like radical officers doing loads of international solidarity stuff. So they were linked to social movements in places like Ghana and South Africa, as well as Palestine and Venezuela, all over the world, as well as being really militant on stuff like um, uh, anti tuition fees and um, anti-cuts to austerity and like critical of the police and borders and prevent all of the kind of stuff that really affected um, black students in their day-to-day -day lives, as well as thinking yeah, more broadly about what's happening internationally as well. And I thought it was really crucial. And maybe we should be unsurprised therefore that the NUS slowly but surely uh, defunded um, uh, their capacity to operate. Um, you know, they ran two conferences a year, one in London, one somewhere else, um, which obviously, um, were quite expensive um, to run to bring all of those black students from all over the country together to organize. Um, but it was one of the few opportunities that you had like black organizers from all over the country coming together for a whole weekend to strategize, to learn, to connect, to organize together. Um, and yeah, I think that, yeah, the NUS has unfortunately defunded it. And um, maybe after lockdown, when people can have face-to-face -face conferences again, we might be able to see if these things can be rejuvenated. But um, I think yeah. I think their kind of work uh, angered a lot of people in the in the uh, student as well as university establishment. Yeah, definitely did, definitely did. I remember I did a few in London. I think I did one in Birmingham. There were some really good people coming through, mostly. Um, I think, uh, gosh, yeah, I said a Carla, Diane Abbott would always come down and speak, and uh, we had Clive Lewis, the MP, on the show uh, not long ago. Apparently, he was quite involved in the Black Student Movement. 
as well. So he was talking about that, but also we had him on with a friend, the cardiologist, um, Nishat uh, Siddiqui, and she said she remembers because she knows him from the black student movement. And they said that Trevor Phillips showed up one year and they were so angry because he came in a Ferrari. <laughs> like they were just like, you know, so mad. It was like, really? That's what you thought was a good idea to do. I mean, asking you both uh, just, you know, before we end this section, like, what do you think of, because like the way you talk, Paul, uh, sorry, no, I called you Paul, Sean was talking about Bristol. Like people were talking about these black movements and stuff. And I was listening to what Linton had said and I was thinking about it. I'm not so sure of this thing, if we are gonna move forward, it's gonna be along color lines anymore. They've got too many of us, do you know what I mean? <laughs> They've got like, the Quasis, the Trevors, the, you know, it's just so disheartening. And I had heard, I don't know if it's true, that Turning Point um, go into universities. So I'm just telling you what an Asian lecturer told me, so don't even think of suing me because I don't own anything. But if, like I heard they're actually going to universities and targeting black and Asian students and stuff. I mean, <laughs> How do you go, what do you guys think going forward? There's so many, it's like, honestly, it's like, they're just like, we're sleeping and there's like coming and picking them out their beds and you're getting the Calvins and the Dominiques and the Inayas and the, you're just like, oh, for good. And Trevor Phillips, I'm sorry, there's something wrong with him as well. I know, because that, did you hear his comment about the, a response, black people's response to, the race report, which was awful, which half the people involved in it said, that was nothing to do with me. They changed my words. They left this out. But he said, oh, they're like a bunch of mandingos fighting. I think yeah. it's about time he stopped now. Uh, sometimes I did find it slightly, I mean, I just thought he's just an idiot, but you know, he's just some little old uncle that like at Christmas time, your family just put him in the corner and give him some rum or something. And he chats rubbish, but he really is. It's yeah, he's horrible, awful. isn't it? Yeah, I mean, what I'll say, I mean, I'm not exactly sure in terms of if this answers your question, but just to talk about it in the round, what I saw amongst my students, particularly when Trump became president, I saw my students become much more politicised um, and much more vocal because they were just outraged at what, what, what was going on. And that was intersectional. That was female students, you know, outraged about, you know, his treatment of women and what we're talking about with women. Um, of my black students and even the the white male students becoming more politicized and and you know and I think from that time and different things that have gone on there's much more I guess social awareness that have crept into the student population so I'm I'm optimistic I'm hopeful and I guess maybe that's because I work at an arts department which is you know very often much more left-leaning and maybe vocally politically radical or outspoken than maybe some other faculties. Um, but I, you know, I still get students that just want to do, you know, want to do their thing, you know, fashion or, you know, whatever, whatever. But I definitely see a more increase in socially engaged, politically aware work. So that gives me hope, really. Yeah. I guess what I'm asking is going forward, do you think it's important to keep these black spaces, these sort of black safe spaces and stuff like that? Or do you think now with what seems to be, you know, this new black, these new black voices emerging? I mean, they've obviously been these types of people, do you know, like the Calvins or whatever around for years. I mean, slavery was 
you couldn't have survived without those kind of people who were helping out and stuff. But do you think it's important to keep these spaces black or do you think at this moment now it's more important to open them up? Because I was speaking to Clive about the most depressing debate I ever saw in the House of Commons was the uh, teaching black history school debate. And it was the black toys and uh, black labor. Yeah, yeah, I just looked yeah. at that. I thought, wow, not a single white person's in that conversation. Yeah. And these two sets of people are arguing back and forth and back and forth. I just looked, it was like, wow, divide and conquer. Mm. Just there, right? You know, what do you think? I, going think, that, I, think, I think safe black spaces are still important, but I don't think they should, that shouldn't be the expense of connecting with and communicating with other groups. Do you know what I mean? I think there was a much richer solidarity sense of solidarity in the 70s and 80s you know than there is now i think i think things become so entrenched and so polarized um and the promise of social media promise of social media is meant to be about democratization of voice and all this sort of stuff and it's actually pushed people i think further apart than it has brought us together so i still i am still in favor of safe black spaces but i don't think spaces should be exclusionary of inclusion so even if you think about safe black spaces often are i think the perception is still quite a left-wing black narrative do you know what i mean so i'm interested and in actually you know i would never vote conservative but there are black conservatives so where do we have the conversation with them where do we have the to understand what a black conservative is or think or why are they like that do you know what I mean and so I I, I do think I do, I do think that it's limiting and we do have to be able to speak across class speak across you know gender speak across sexual se um, sexual orientation and importantly speak across political divides because that doesn't happen often enough so I think yeah. yeah I think they just don't that's the problem is they don't want to talk to us We've invited so many black conservatives on this show. Do you know what I mean? And to be honest, I had to unblock half of them to get them. I was, I was just like, what about this person? Yeah. I'll unblock quickly, I'll unblock. Um, you know, they don't seem very receptive to having conversations with other black people. I mean, I've tried my best. I've offered moisturizer. <laughs> I'm not even gonna say why they might not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like Calvin. I just... Do you know what I mean? I came in peace and love. And he's like, ain't it killing it next year? But you know, yeah, that's the problem. They don't want to talk to us. And I think very often, if you do like joking aside, like try to have any kind of debate with them on social media, they will release racists into your, you yeah, know, I don't think, I don't into think your um, mentions. I don't think social media is the space. I really, no, yeah, I think it doesn't work. Part of the problem. Not, it's not the I, yeah. I, I think I think this is part of the kind of limits of thinking simply through diversity, um, because I think the left thought that diversity was going to be this kind of silver bullet to anti-racism, and then the conservatives have been like, "Oh, you want to do diversity? We can do diversity." Um, and and the and the conservatives have been doing diversity for a long time, right? As Ava said, they've been doing diversity during the periods of colonialism. They wouldn't have been able to colonize much of the world if they weren't doing diversity by bringing local natives into their systems of power. Um, into their, you know, to, to help run their police forces and their administrations and whatnot. And they did it again when decolonization happened to put people who were favorable to Britain in positions of power so they could maintain their dominance over their former colonies. And now they're doing their diversity initiatives all over again, but they're doing it here on the British mainland. 
And so for me, it's, I think it's less about identity. You know, how does this person identify who's in this position of power? And it's more about what is their politics? And are they committed to a kind of black politics? I think that's what I'm interested in. I think the reason the Black Students Campaign was so important wasn't simply because it was a place for students of colour to come together and organise. It was because it was committed to a certain kind of black liberation politics. And I think that's what was so crucial and important about it. And unless you've got that black politics, as well as that independent black organising, you're just going you're gonna, to you're gonna be open to having a, yeah, a, whole, a whole team of Trevor Phillips that are going to set us back 30 or 40 years. Yeah. And so I think it's that commitment to a kind of black politics, that I think, is really important. Um, and that's what we can learn from, from the past, I think, from yeah, the 1970s. But it's also, I think, what a lot of young people are trying to do now as well, um, where these new... Um, iterations of, of black movements like um, All Black Lives or uh, Justice of Black Lives or Tribe Named Atari, all of these people who are kind of late teens, early 20s, who are, who are young black people, all of them, but are also committed to a black politics, a black politics and liberation. And I think that's, what's, that's, that, that's the combination of things that we need in order to, to, to push against what the conservatives are trying to do um, yeah. in their kind of diversity initiatives. Well, I think that is a perfect place to end it. Um, Adam, just quickly say where you can get your book. We will put it in the comments below, but I know we have some regular viewers. Hi, Alvin. I'm not sure he can read. So if you just tell us. <laughs> cool. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, so, yeah, the book's called um, Black Resistance to British Policing. Uh, you can buy it, you know, Waterstones, Amazon, all those places, as well as from the Manchester University Press uh, website as well, if you want to do that thing as well. So, yeah, thank you. Sean, have you got anything you want to plug? No, just love. <laughs> All we need is love. Okay, guys, just stay on because I just can do the, the 10 questions. So if you are one of our patrons, you can go to Patreon now and you can watch 10 questions. Um, thank you very much. <laughs>